Let's have a word of let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for this beautiful, gorgeous Sabbath day that you've provided. Uh, it is a nice break for us who live here in the the way up north, uh, where it's really cold usually in February. But uh, being in the 60s and 70s, that's a real treat, especially on the Sabbath day. And a nice sunny day. We look forward to uh, the rest of this day. But this morning we ask for the Holy Spirit to be poured out uh, upon us. We ask for discernment. So we study into uh, how to deal with sin uh, that we see in the church. Um, We pray that the Holy Spirit will uh, enlighten us and fill our hearts with love one for another. That's the the root that... uh, uh, we need to have in our hearts in order to deal effectively with the things we see. We want to have hearts of compassion as our Savior does. And so we pray for discernment and wisdom. We pray for those who couldn't be here today, those who are ill as well. Uh, we praise you for answered prayer. And uh, we thank you so much for Jesus who gave up all heaven so that uh, he could come and, and save each one of us. Uh, we ask forgiveness for our sins. Um, and uh, we are ashamed, Father, that our sins have caused the death of your dear Son. But we are thankful that you love us that much to give us another opportunity. Give me the words to speak this morning, Lord. I humbly ask in the name of Jesus, who is so worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Uh, in part one, which was a couple weeks ago, we began to look at some biblical principles uh, on how to correctly deal with the sin issue within the church. And I want to emphasize, um, because sometimes I've been approached by uh, members of the household of faith uh, to (laughs) go through this process that that I'm about to share with you, that Jesus shared with us, uh, on how to deal with sin, and they want me to, to deal with their neighbor who's a, a, an unbeliever. And so I, I want to emphasize that these principles deal with those who are in the church, um, not those who are not members, for the church has no authority over unbelievers, at least on earth, right now in this great controversy between Christ and Satan. Um, and so only God has authority over unbelievers where they're Actually, whether they want to believe that or not. Um, you know, quoting out of Isaiah 45, Paul says in Romans 14:11, he says, For it is written, that's what Paul's saying, it's written in Isaiah 45, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall what? Bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So whether you believe in God or not, uh, you will bow before him one day. All of us will. And confess that he is God. And so, so God has authority over uh, what we, we want to, we're calling unbelievers, those who have not accepted Jesus uh, Christ. And, and the church doesn't uh, have authority when it comes to this. And, and we looked at an example of how open sin uh, within the church was dealt with by the Apostle Paul. Remember the, the young man who was uh, fornicating with his father's wife at Corinth, and the church was doing nothing about it. They were even allowing him uh, to share in communion. <laughs> you know, and so that was open sin, and we, we dealt with how, uh, looked at how Paul dealt with that. We looked at how God dealt with secret sin uh, that was within the church, and the instructions, you know, that he, that he gave to Joshua on how to search out sin within the congregation. That example was Achan, you remember. 
Uh, we looked at the biblical principle Paul laid out to Timothy on how to deal with sin within the church, uh, a sin by a leader in the church, such as an elder. And and so that was in part part one. Now, Second Timothy, I want to bring this to your attention as we move on. Second Timothy four and verse two says that we are to preach the word. Right, this is his counsel to Timothy. He says. Preach the word, be instant in season. What do you think he means by that? Be instant in season. Basically, it's the same thing as saying, be ready all the time to give an answer, right? For your faith. He says, be instant in season, out of season. Even when you're not expecting it. How many times, Russ, let me ask you this. You're at work, and somebody comes up to you and wants to talk to you, and you think they're wanting to talk to you about work, and they ask you some spiritual question. All the time. You're not really necessarily expecting it, you know, but there it is. And this is what Paul's telling Timothy. He said, be instant in season, out of season. You know, in other words, be ready all the time, right? Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And why are we charged to do this? There's a reason that, that Paul was telling Timothy to, to do these things. Because, you know, if you practice stuff and you're doing it all the time, it, it basically becomes uh, habitual, doesn't it? It becomes a, a habit. And this is why he goes on to say, this is why he has counseled Timothy to do this, because he goes on, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers Having itching ears, isn't that interesting how he describes that in the Greek language they're describing itching ears? It means they don't want to hear things that that offends their delicate and sinful nature. They want to hear those nice, lovely things. As Susan up in Bow Creek says, they want the sloppy agape. Tell me all about the love of God and the love and the love and the love. We don't want to hear about sin. Nobody wants to hear about sin today, do they? Not too many, let me tell you. And he says, And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So they'll start to follow fables, error, instead of the truth. And we don't want this to happen to us, uh, do we? Or or, uh, in the church. And so it's important to know how to deal with the sin issue um, the way God wants us to deal with sin, and the way God has dealt with the sin issue. If you look at it, He doesn't want us to deal with it any different than He does. Right? We don't want any of that any of that to happen to us or the church. Now, I want to get started by looking at the biblical principle we're to use when someone trespasses against us personally, and not necessarily in public, though it could be that it was done in public. It's found in Matthew 18. Now, I know many of you have read Matthew 18 before, uh, but one of the things I've seen and experienced quite often is it's been read but not quite understood correctly, and so it hasn't been used. These principles haven't been used correctly. And sometimes that causes more harm than it does good. So Matthew 18, verse 15, here Jesus is speaking, And he says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. And now I'm going to define some things here in a few minutes. So let's just read it through here. 
If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee two, take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now I'm going to break this down um, so that we're not confused. Hopefully we're not confused uh, anyway. Um, after all, a mistake you know, in following this instruction, like I said, it actually could cost somebody their eternal life, and it might even cost us our own eternal life. Uh, so it's really important to 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 understand the the principles here, what Jesus is really laying out for us, and to carry it out with the right um, attitude and and the right motivation. That's really a key. Are we really motivated out of love for God and love for our fellow being? Or are we bitter or angry or something like that? See? So, let's go back to Matthew 18 and look at verse 15. It says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, Jesus says this is between you and who? Your brother. He says thy brother. The Greek word for brother is adelphos. And it can mean several types of close associations depending upon how it's used in the context. Context, a few weeks ago when we were in Brookston, I talked about you know, um, Bible principles of study, basic ones. And most people don't think about it too much, but context is a very important Bible principle. How many times have you run into somebody who has taken something out of context? Quite often, if you're studying the Bible. Just about all the time, right? So we need to understand the context of how this Greek word Adelphos is used. It can mean a brother that's born of the same parents, right? It can mean having the same national ancestor. You know, you're in another country and you say, my American brothers, right? Um, It can mean any human being. Well, my human brother, we're all brethren as human beings. Uh, it can mean a fellow believer. It can mean an associate that you work with. Uh, someone who is a brethren in Christ. So the context is it's very important in order to know how it's to be defined in that context. In this particular verse, where Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother, in this context, Adam Clark, commentary, he says, it means any who is a member of the same religious society. So when Jesus was talking to them, he was basically talking to the Jews, wasn't he? So they took that in the context as meaning any believer, anybody who is of the household of faith, anybody who is a Jew. That's the way they understood it. So this principle that Jesus is laying out for us deals primarily with church brethren. And as I mentioned before, not between believers and and unbelievers necessarily. Now, I would encourage because these are righteous principles, after all, 
I would encourage someone to approach someone who is an unbeliever. Maybe you work with somebody, but they have done a wrong against you. I would say, yeah, make an attempt to work things out with them. That's a part of this principle, right? But if it doesn't go any further than that, you can't bring your elders or anybody with you to go to that person. I mean, that'd be kind of crazy in their mind. They're thinking, you guys are nuts, right? What's that? Take your coordinator. Yeah, you know, supervisor. your supervisor, or whatever. Yeah. See, you, you, you know, you use these principles, and maybe you can work these things out. And I would encourage that, because we must always, as Paul says, we need to always try to strive and live peaceably with all people. And sometimes that may mean, it actually may mean personally living with the wrong that's been done to us. And so, you know, from from an unbeliever, that was an amen. Amen. Uh, and so, but the counsel that Jesus has given in the Gospels is specifically uh, for his uh, believers. Now, let's define some things real quickly here. The word trespass. Trespass means to miss the mark, to err, to be mistaken, uh, to wander from the law of God, to violate God's law, to sin, to offend. Now, some of you have been with us through the whole series, you'll remember we defined sin before, and there are three basic categories of sin, as God laid out. You know, He said there were trespasses, there were sin, and there was iniquity. And, and we saw how a lot of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were laid out according to those categories. There were offerings for trespasses, there were offerings for sin, there were offerings for iniquity. Most all trespasses are done ignorantly because that's what a trespass is as defined. You don't know that it's a sin. You're ignorant to it. It's still a sin, and we covered this before. It's still a sin. God sees it as a sin, but he gives us grace and mercy because we didn't know that. The, most all trespasses are done ignorantly. And I say most all trespasses. Some aren't. There are some categories, some things. But the Greek word here entails more than an ignorant sin. That uh, word is harmontanio. It, it, it's a little bit stronger than just a sin of ignorance. So when Jesus is saying if your brother trespassed, it can be he, he did it ignorantly, or yeah, he kind of knew about it, you know. And so, but it's not like full-blown evil, although that could be the case as, case as well. The word tell means to convict, to refute, to confute, to call to account. I like that part of it. To call to account, to show someone their fault, uh, to ask for an explanation. That's kind of what that Greek word uh, means. Uh, the word hear uh, here is the Greek word akuo. It means to consider what is or has been said. That seems simple, doesn't it? Now, knowing these definitions, let's read the verse again. I'm going to plug in these meanings, a little bit more meaning here. Matthew 18:15. Jesus said, Moreover, if a church member, a believer, shall sin or offend thee, go and call them to account, to account between you and him alone. 
If he shall consider what is or has been said that you brought to his attention, you've gained your brother. Makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? And and this is a and, and this is an important part of the step that needs to be uh, emphasized. I think uh, is that it's a private matter between the two of you. Now we talked about public sins. There's a way to handle that too, um, and we talked about that before. But but this is a sin against you, and you need to try to work it out between just the two of you. It's a private matter. You don't want to go around spreading reports uh, about the person before you even try to, you know, work it out with them. Word may get back to them. I mean, that's not the right thing to do, is it? Um, and so, in my past, I mean, I've been on both ends of the stick on this. And I've learned the hard way a lot of lessons, too. And so, it's it's just not the right thing to do. Um it may make it even impossible to reach him, you know, if that happens. And so, we need to remember the golden rule. Now, I wasn't raised with any church upbringing or religion, but I was taught the golden rule. You know, you treat others the way you want to be treated. And so, let's just remember that. And the, le- the less public- publicity that's given to a wrong, uh, the better. I think, at least in as you go through these first few steps. Now what happens if the person rejects your appeal to them? What what if he doesn't want to hear you at all? No, I don't want to hear you at all. Or he hears what you have to say and then rejects <laughs> what you have to say. Well Jesus gives a, an answer in the next verse, Matthew eighteen sixteen. He says, But if he will not hear thee then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And so let's break this down a little bit. If he will not hear thee, that's kind of uh, self-explanatory, I think, isn't it? I mean, what if he, he hears you and he says, no, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know? What if he doesn't change his course? What if it's something that he's continually doing that harms you? You know. Um, then Jesus is saying, well, don't attempt to go back by yourself. Take a couple more. This is what he says. The one or two more are to be those who may that person may esteem or trust. You don't take your buddies, somebody that that person doesn't respect and try to work something out. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, you want people who are fair, who will see thing, things objectively, right? Who are, for all intents and purposes, uh, has been disinterested, so to speak. They don't know everything that's going on. Right, they don't have a stake in it. That's a good way of putting it. They don't have a biased opinion. Um, and in in case the the offending person neglects to heed their you know counsel, they can bear witness too. They can come back and bear witness to the church that hey, he's been doing the process. They tried. This is the way he's reacted. You know, and so you go to the next step. Um, you remember why would Jesus say in the mouth of two or three witnesses? Is he quoting scripture? You think he's using a biblical principle there? 
According to Hebrew law, no person was to be punished on the testimony of just one witness. Didn't matter what they had done, one witness wouldn't do it. There had to be two to three credible witnesses. That means, you know, people that were respected. They weren't, you know, a lot of times you go through history and there have been situations where, well, take take Chicago, for example, in the 30s with all the, you know, the mafia and Al Capone. They hired witnesses. Didn't the Sanhedrin hire witnesses to testify against Christ? See, they knew this law. So they hired two or three witnesses to testify against Christ. But they weren't credible witnesses. And how do we know that they weren't credible witnesses? Their stories didn't match up. <laughs> right? So people knew, yeah, they're not credible. See, So they need to be credible witnesses. And, and, you know, there are always two sides to every disagreement. Um, the old saying is there's actually three sides. There's your, your view, their view, and then there's the truth. That's <laughs> the old saying, you know. And so both need to have a fair hearing before a decision is reached. And so this person, he has to see that there's fair play in the process or the reaction will not be to hear what you have to say or to change his ways by repenting. What happens if the person continues to reject counsel? You bring two or three witnesses and they still reject. Well, Jesus goes on in the next verse, Matthew 18, 17. He says, If he shall neglect to hear them, then tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Let's break down a few words again here so that we're clear as to what Jesus is saying. The word neglect, it's a Greek word, it's parakuo. It, it means to refuse to hear, to pay no regard to. Uh, and, it, and it emphasizes pay no regard to, to disobey. Still that kind of a, an attitude of rebellion, so, so to speak. The word church... You know what the word church means? You've heard of the Greek word uh, ecclesia. Have you heard that before? For the church. It means an assembly of, uh, in this case, assembly of believers gathered for worship in a religious meeting. Uh, and so, here, uh, Jesus is saying, okay, if he doesn't hear you, even with your witnesses, then you take it to the church. And this is very interesting because there becomes a transfer of responsibility then between you who has been offended to the church. This is a form of unity that shows that a family is united together. We're going to stick together on this. They've heard you. You take it to the church. The church says, yeah. And so now it's in the church's hands. And this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, you're all brethren, you're family. And so, something else I want to point out. When, if it gets to this point, we need to remember that this reconciliation process, and that's what this is really all about, is to reconcile um, a, a fraction between a couple of believers. Think of it in the big scope of what did God do to reconcile 
himself with man. It's the same kind of, of idea here. Like I said earlier, God's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't done. See? He wants us to be righteous as he is righteous. And so, it gets moved to the church and it starts at the local level. And that's important to, to keep in mind as well. It, if it's at the local level, it stays at the local level. And it can move beyond that, but not until after a lot of these things have been been done. So if the person refuses to hear you and the witnesses, then you tell it to all the local church body in a business session. The responsibility then uh, passes from you to the body of believers as a whole at the local level first. It's now up to the church to speak to the person. And uh, what they'll do, they'll speak to them through chosen people. It would be probably leaders, elders, deacons, men filled with uh, the Holy Ghost. You see examples in the Bible of that. Uh, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New. And then they go and they try to reconcile. And then they bring it back to the church. And they let the church know. And then it, it's all judged. Uh, we must have righteous judgment. We talked about that in part one. But if the person refuses to consider what the church says in the matter, then Jesus says, let him be unto thee as what? A heathen man and a publican. Now I've seen some people use their... The reason I'm spending time on defining these words is some people have their own definitions of what that means and they may mistreat the person. So let's define these terms. What does a heathen mean here? Well, in the Greek it means someone who is alien to the worship of the true God. It means that, that they're a pagan or a Gentile. That's what it means. Essentially, it means that they are to be treated as someone who is not a believer in Jesus. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. The word publican, that's a very strong word. And Jesus said, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Some people take that publican. Well, let's define it. Publican was a tax gatherer. It was a collector of taxes or tolls. The tax collectors were a class of people that were detested by the Jews. And not only by Jews, though, um, but by other nations as well, both on account of what they were. Nobody likes to have money taken from their pocket, no. right? But because they were very harsh about how they did it, they, their greed knew no bounds, and they usually dealt in deception in, in the way that they did their job. You know, in our country, we file taxes ourselves as individuals. Back then, you could show up and they, they by law, force you, you know, Mary and Joseph had to go back uh, to Bethlehem because of they were counting the people for taxes. See? But sometimes the tax man would show up to a person's door or they'd show up to their employment. They may show up to Peter. He's bringing in a big haul of fish and all of a sudden he gets to shore and there's the tax man. There's the publican. Oh, I see you got a good haul today, Peter. I'll take 15% of that. So they weren't looked on very well. Right? So Jesus is saying that the person is to be considered, and this is the context of it. People get mixed up and think, well, we need to treat them 
angrily, you know, because you treat him as a publican. No, what he's saying is that the person is to be considered as one who is an unbeliever, one who has not been converted. You know, they have actually openly, because most publicans, they openly rejected Christ or anything to do with the church. Their love is not for God. Their love is for wealth. See? So no matter their profession, they're considered as an unbeliever who's opposed to Jesus and his church. The person may say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but if they're not willing to work things out with their brethren, and they go through the steps and they've rejected all the biblical steps, it doesn't matter what they profess. There's a lot of people in the world that profess to be Christians. That doesn't mean they are, right? Jesus said, by their fruits, ye shall know them. So when they get to that step, they are then removed from church membership, and that information is to be uh, in the Adventist church. That information is supposed to be passed along to all the churches by an official letter to the clerk of each church. The reason for this is to keep unity among the churches and keep that errant one from church hopscotching, so to speak, you know, to other congregations that otherwise would have never known that that person had, was in such a spiritual condition that they needed to be reconciled. And this is a, another reason why you know, true gospel order and organization is very essential. I've witnessed these particular, uh, this particular failure by local churches many times, sad to say. And I've even seen other churches, <laughs> this is remarkable to me, um, but you can see logically see why this happens because they're not following proper church order. But I've seen other churches take sides with the with the offender and against the local church. <laughs> and I'll tell you that Satan celebrates all of it because that's what he wants, strife and disunity in God's church. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood about this. This action uh, by the local church does not mean that the person should be despised or neglected. That's not what Jesus means, again, by saying they're to be treated as a heathen and a publican. It means that they need to be treated with compassion, but there are certain principles on how we are to treat them now. And so, you know, you want to go out, and we, we want to go out and spread the gospel. That person who's been removed is to be looked at as someone who needs to hear the gospel. But they have particular principles involved for that. Different principles apply, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, the other thing I want to mention about that is we need to be careful on with somebody who's been disfellowshipped and is in such a spiritual condition as that. We need to be careful of how we associate with them. Um, we don't want to associate in such a way that it will appear that we share their point of view or that we have some kind of sympathy with their, uh, their position, their sin. We don't want that. Now, there are cases where a person's behavior as a member may be serious enough to call for an expression of disapproval that's called censorship. Have you heard that before? They've been censured instead of disfellowshipped. It's almost like, I don't want to say it's a step before disfellowship, because it's really kind of two different things. But they are independently, somehow they, they, you can't have a relation there. Um, 
but they'll vote for censure. What is censure? Let's go back to the dictionary real quick. Webster's Dictionary um, says this of censure, the 1828 uh, edition. The act of blaming or finding fault and condemning is wrong, applicable to the moral conduct or to the works of men. When applied to persons, it is nearly equivalent to blame, reproof, reprehension, reprimand. It is an expression of disapprobation, which often implies reproof. That's the first definition of it. The second is judicial sentence, judgment that condemns. An ecclesiastical, here's the part that's interesting. An ecclesiastical censure is a sentence of condemnation or penalty inflicted on a member of a church for malconduct. That's usually what censure applies to today. It has to do with the person's conduct. It has a twofold purpose, censure does. First, to enable the church to officially express its disapproval of the offense that has brought disgrace upon the cause of God. So it's kind of a separation there. They're, they're, you're saying this person's behavior, the church does not condone. You're officially saying that. So it, it's for the world and that person to realize we do not condone that. Okay. The second thing is to impress upon the offending member the need to change. right? To not do that. To reform their conduct. And so, uh, what usually happens is a person who's censured, they're given, it's like putting someone on probation. That's probably the best way to, to explain it. For whatever, you know, they're being censured for. Um, now, let me get to the Bible real quick, and then we'll get to that maybe a little bit, a little bit more in detail. But you can see this in the biblical account of Miriam. Uh, found in chapters 12 of the book of Numbers. Miriam spoke against Moses. You remember that? Because she was jealous of his wife's influence with him. Miriam was Moses' sister. Moses was married, and she felt that Moses' wife was influencing him too much. (laughs) And so she was jealous of it. Aaron was... Who was Aaron? He was Moses' brother as well. And he sympathized with Miriam. Um, And the reason that Aaron was guilty before God's eyes was because he failed to warn Miriam about her jealousy. So they were both became an offender. They regarded themselves as equally favored by God. They felt that they were entitled to the same position uh, um, and authority as Moses. And the Lord heard them both. They were speaking in secret, but God hears you in secret. And what did God do? He held them both accountable and he struck Miriam down with leprosy. Aaron was spared leprosy, but he was severely rebuked by seeing Miriam's punishment. Aaron immediately knew, whoops. So Aaron confessed their sin and he entreated by prayer that his sister might not be left to perish with leprosy. And in answer to the prayers of Moses, the leprosy was cleansed by Miriam. But what happened to Miriam? Was all well and hunky-dory? She was censured because of her 
her actions. She was removed from her duties and placed outside the camp for a particular amount of time. She was censured. Numbers 12, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father hath but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed? A week? Seven days, he says. Let her be shut out from the camp seven days, and after that let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. So God had her moved without Israel. She was by herself on probation. Now think about this. Why would God do this? I mean, there's several reasons why he would do it. But who was Miriam again? Moses' Moses's sister. What if she got a little smack on the wrist? Yep. What example would that show? Else would do it. What would that? Yeah, see, what would that show the, the rest of the church? Well, God plays favorites. No, God doesn't play favorites. In fact, it was earnest prayer on behalf of Aaron and Moses, and for God to say, remove her from the camp seven days. She's not entitled to do anything, and so. In fact, when you read the account, not until Miriam was removed from the encampment did God's favor again rest upon the tabernacle. He wouldn't even come into the tabernacle until they had removed Miriam and censured her. And so, this was designed to be a warning to all Israel to check that growing spirit of discontent, that insubordination that Russ talking about. And everybody would start doing it. You know, it would let... Uh, basically, God would be sanctioning sin, wouldn't he? God doesn't do that. And and so she was rebuked and she was censured uh, for seven days, put on probation. And you could say, in looking at the big picture again, you know, the great controversy between Christ and Satan, uh, looking at good and evil, man has been censured, haven't we? In relationship to heaven? We've been put on probation until we come to repentance and are born again and we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. Amen? And so we see again that God isn't asking us to do anything that He, in righteousness, would not do. See? It's the right thing to do. And so an erring member today may be placed under censure by a vote of the church body. A vote of censure is normally for a stated period of time. Miriam was seven days. Today, I've seen it, it's usually from a month to a, even up to a year. It just depends on what's going on, what it is. Um, and a person, when you're put under censure, they're removed from any church offices that they may hold. They can't uh, participate in church matters by voice or by vote. Uh, and no public outreach. Miriam was removed from the camp, wasn't she? Okay. Because what would that, again, what would that say about the church as a whole if you allowed, you know, somebody that's censured to just norm, do their normal thing? They condone. Yeah, the church, it showed that they condone it. We, we, you know, God doesn't want that stain um, on church. But they're not to be deprived, you know, of the privilege of sharing Sabbath, you know, worship service, prayer meeting. You know, those those things. Another important thing to realize is that a vote of censure must not carry any provision. And this is what I tried to talk about. It's a little bit different 
than disfellowshipping them. Um, and it has to do with, basically it has to do with some their motivation and attitude behind what they've done. If they have a teachable spirit and are trying to work it out and learn, that's censure. If they're a rebellious spirit and just don't want to hear you, that's disfellowship. That's where that leads, see. So there's, there's a couple of ways of disciplining church members. But you, you don't want to impose on them that's being censured. Say, if you don't do this within 30 days, then you're out of the church. That's not what censuring is about. It's more of an educational kind of tool that protects the church and helps the person to learn. And so, like I said, it's an attempt to educate and reconcile that person and keep the stain away from the church. It's like disciplining a child, in a sense, a wayward child. You don't throw them out of the house the first time they disobey and do things. Well, Barb does, so, you know. <laughs> no, Barb doesn't. <laughs> but you, you try to educate them, but you take some things away. Right, Mitch? You don't get to have your phone, Mitch. You don't get to have the keys to the car. You don't get to, you know, whatever you decide as a family, see. Yeah, he is beyond, beyond that. So, though, and the reason for that, again, I want to emphasize, those unbelievers outside will see that the church is serious then in dealing with sin and wrongs among themselves, and they will also see that God's family has order. It has law and it has order. It's structured. Believe it or not, we as human beings are not really, if we're honest with ourselves, we're not really happy if there are, are no laws. We were created to, to have structure. Satan comes and says, oh, do whatever you like. There's no law. How many are happy with that? Now, if we're honest. And so after their time of censure, uh, uh, you know, comes to an end, then there's a reevaluation, and you see how the person has done, and you may extend it. You may have to extend it, and uh, or you may take them. You know, if you take them, remove them from censure, then they're they're a church member again with all the, you know, it's been taken care of, and so um, that's a, a a very good process, I think, and I appreciate how God is has had compassion on us to lay the two things out. It isn't just a black and white, you're out the door. You know, there are processes. I read, you know, a few years ago, there was an SDA church in Africa. And <clears throat> we we tend to not even think of censure, and most churches don't do it anymore, which is a, a sad uh, commentary. But there was an SDA church in Africa a few years ago that censured a number of younger members because they had played worldly music and danced to worldly songs during a public wedding. Now, this is in Africa. okay. Of course, the young people didn't like being censured. And many of them revolted because of the stance of the church. But it was necessary in order to teach the sinfulness of sin. Some learned, some of those, those young people learned the lesson. They repented of it. Some have yet to learn, and some left entirely. I would encourage you sometime to study into uh, what uh, our prophet says about censure and the offenses that would 
call for one to be censured. And I think that uh, more than a few eyes would really be opened by the kind of lax attitude there is towards sin in the church today <laughs> and censuring. It's rather amazing. You see, God doesn't play games with the sin issue, does he? He doesn't. You know, eternal life's a serious subject. And God wants us to be saved from our sins. He doesn't want us to be saved in our sins. In fact, that's impossible. He wants to save us. And removing an individual from membership in the church is always a, it's a serious matter. It's the ultimate discipline that the church can administer. Um, it is the extreme measure that can meted out, be meted out by the church. It's very serious. And only after instruction given in Scripture has been followed, and after all possible efforts have been made to win and restore the person to the right path, should this kind of discipline be used. Let's look at Matthew 18 and verse 18. Boy, I need to move along here. I may have to wrap this up and go to part three next time. <laughs> Um, Matthew 18, verse 18. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to, to tell you that what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying everything a church decides is bound in heaven. Heaven agrees with. Would you agree with that? No. No. Heaven's ratification of the decision by a church on earth will take place only if the decision is made in harmony with the principles of heaven. If it's sound and biblical and right with God, then they back it. And I'll tell you, the condition of the church today, the professed church, it's mistaken to think that they're doing the work of God when they disfellowship commandment keepers, especially those who stand up against the profaning of the Sabbath day. And the church disfellowships people who stand up for the Sabbath and say, we're not to do those things on the Sabbath, you know, right here biblically, and the church disfellowships them. And they think they're doing the work of God? They're not. Do you think heaven sanctions that? No. Now I want to quickly share another principle. And uh, you see how much time I have. Well, I'll give you a taste of it here. And then we'll come back to it next time we get together. Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. This is similar to Matthew 18. It's similar, but there are some differences. Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Let's get some definitions. Jesus said here, if thy brother hath aught against thee. What does the word ought mean? It's just, it's kind of a simple word, really. It means if he has something against you. If he, 
that's probably the best way to put it. If he has something against you, if he has a grudge against you, if he's done something against you, if there's something, you know, there's a conflict there. The word reconciled means to change thoroughly. So you want to change their position. If he has something against you, you want to change it. You want to be, you know, uh, in unity, something worked out. Now, when Jesus said that, he's on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And those people who are gathered there on the sermon uh, to hear him, uh, his words there on the Mount, they understood brother to refer to, again, a fellow Jew. To Christians, it'd be a fellow Christian. The term is rightly understood as designating those with whom we are closely associated in one way or another. You know, as as we went through before. But the context is a fellow church member. Someone of the same faith. So Christ insists that men must make things right with their fellow men before they can be reconciled with God. That's the overall principle here. That's why, you know, Jesus says, you know, if you don't forgive somebody, neither can the Father in Heaven forgive you. There needs to be an attempt, at least, of reconciliation, right? And so, the living out of Christ-like principles in life is of far greater value in the sight of God than practicing the forms of religion. Jesus is saying, I prefer that you reconcile your relationship than to offer this sacrifice, is what he's saying. The form of religion. He's saying, work it out. It's about heart condition, isn't it? And I appreciate that about God. Notice this. Let me share this with you. It's from the book Ministry of Healing, page 485. It's speaking about these verses. It says, Do all that lies in your power without the sacrifice of principle to conciliate with others. In other words, to make things right with others. Do everything in your power to do that without the sacrifice of principle. So do it in a righteous way. Follow the principles that Jesus has given us here and try to work it out. Then you've done what you you, you could do. Now there are a couple other things to consider in regard to these principles I'm uh, talking about here in Matthew 5, Matthew 18. The first deals with you know the time element that's involved, such as when do you go to the person, when do you take to or three witnesses, when do you take it to the church, those kinds of things, you know. Some people get kind of hung up on that. Uh, The second has to do with how you contact the person. How do you start the process outlined uh, by Jesus? And uh, I think we'll stop right there, right right now, and I'll get more into detail, because there's a lot more I want to share here, and there's no way I can do it in, in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, and so um, we'll come back to that the next time we get together. Um, but uh, I hope that you're starting to see that the overall idea behind these principles is that Jesus wants us to learn how to reconcile our differences or reconcile with someone who has sinned against you. And like I said before, look at the bigger picture. There was a gulf made between heaven and earth when Adam and Eve sinned. What steps did God take to reconcile? Notice it was God who took those steps. 
What steps did God take to reconcile man back to himself? And we look at these principles. It's not the, the errant one that Jesus is talking about who needs to take the steps, is it? It's the believer, the one who is filled with Christ's love and compassion and his spirit who takes the first step to reconcile, just as we see in the big picture that God did for us. And so that's the things that I like to emphasize when we talk about these kinds of principles. It's never easy necessarily to go to someone who's come against you, who has sinned against you and whatever. But it, it kind of can also open up to us where our walk is, you know. How is our walk with God? How is our love tank <laughs> between us and that person in a spiritual sense? You know. And the nice thing about it is that God has showed us how to do it. And we don't do it alone. That's the thing too. I mean, I I'll give you an example. And I'm not going to go into great detail, but I had sinned, years ago, I had sinned against somebody, um, a terrible sin. I mean, when I say terrible, people's imagination probably goes wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but sin is sin. We've defined what sin is. But, um, and, and I recognized it. And um, this was a sin that they were, they were aware that something had happened, but they didn't know who had done it. That kind of so so it's kind of like a secret sin. But I wanted to be right with God, and I knew I had to go to that person. It was very difficult. At the beginning, it was very difficult. But once I had prayed several times, and God had nurtured my heart and pushed me and pushed me as well, I knew I had to do it. So I went to that person, and tried to make it right with them. Explained it. Told them how sorrowful I was. They could see that I was very repentant. And it actually ended in a good way. That doesn't always happen. <laughs> you know? And I think that might be the part that kind of scares a lot of us is, what if it's rejected? You know, because we don't really like to be rejected. Well, that's kind of on them. You know, it still doesn't salve the wound, but you've got it off your chest, so to speak. You tried to make it right. You tried to make it right. You, you try. You know, you tried to do all that you can do. And in this particular case, he he was very compassionate and loving towards me, and I I half did expect that because I knew this person's character. And he was angry, <laughs> which he should have been. But, you know, he forgave me. And I thank God for that. And I thank, I thank God that he forgives us, too. You know, when we come to him, he will always forgive us. And so we come to him with a contrite heart. And so I want to encourage you, the, this has to deal with reconciliation, more so than let's just follow the steps and do what we got to do and then it's done. You know, it's not a forensic thing. 
and it can tell us something about ourselves and our heart condition. And so I want to encourage you, if you know of situations like this, and, and you know, go to Christ in prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit to be not only in your heart, but to be in that person's heart as well. And it can end in a beautiful way, you know, if God's Holy Spirit is involved. Sometimes it won't, but it can. And that's an encouragement as well. So I'll leave you with that. And the next time we get together, we'll get more involved in some of the other processes of Matthew 5 and 18. But let's have a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for... Uh, this Holy Sabbath day, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to come together to open your Holy Word, um, to learn some of the principles that that you have laid out on how we deal with sin within the church and between each other. And we appreciate that so very, very much. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be very present in our hearts and our minds always, uh, and that uh, we gain in a love Uh, that love that Jesus has for us, we gain that kind of love for each other. And that uh, people outside of uh, the body of Christ, those who may even be seeking, will look at us and, and see something different. See that we do have the love of Christ and be drawn to Thee. We thank You so much uh, for answered prayer. We thank You uh, so much for Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. And we ask that you continue to bless us, not because we're worthy, because Jesus is, and we pray in his name. Amen.